In the late 18th century, debates about the nature of independence and liberty started bubbling up in the colonies and then the early republic. You know, when you think about the big stories of the 18th century, arguably the the biggest is about individuals entering into or exiting from societies. You know, if you were to have to give a narrative to the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, that would be it. Historian Eric Slaughter says early Americans started to wonder how these big ideas applied to their own personal lives. There's a persistent theme in American politics of people who just want to be left alone. One of the fantasies is the Crusoe-like fantasy that one could go it alone. Hmm. And you see, you see guidebooks to solitude, sort of defenses of solitude and encouragements towards rural retirement or rural retreat. And it's hard for us to think that, the, that life in the 18th century was so busy that people needed to retreat, retreat from it. But, um, but that's clearly how they saw it. And I think that's certainly one of the reasons why you do see hermits at all levels, from the retiring politician to the person who's simply been in business and is, is looking to sort of recreate within the natural world. So give us a couple examples of people in this period who really praised and even valorized the idea of solitude. One thinks of Thomas Jefferson, whose first draft of a name for his retreat in Virginia was not Monticello, but the Hermitage. Mm. Or you could think of George Washington's retirement as, as a desire to leave public life and return to uh, a kind of solitude. Uh, you also have folks like Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, who, when he was just in his early 20s, penned a 100-page poem about uh, the powers of solitude and continued to add to it over the next few years until he had produced a 200-page poem about <laughs> solitude. And one of the most popular fictional stories circulating at the time is about two Virginia gentlemen who head west and stumble upon a very unusual solitary fellow. Hundreds of miles into the interior, they, they find a cave inhabited by what purports to be a 227-year-old hermit. <laughs> and uh, he must like, introduce himself and say, like, hi, I'm a 227-year-old hermit. And, you know, he, they, they coaxed his story out of him. He was a vegetarian, um, which he said was good for his uh, physical constitution, but also meant that animals didn't fear him. He wasn't sort of naturally aggressive, and so they all left him alone. And he had spent his time really, um, you know, in a kind of meditation, thinking on the important things of this world and the next, and um, reading through the newspapers and the almanacs and and the imprints of, of these years, you find this character absolutely everywhere. And I even found, mm. I think, a newspaper advertisement for a waxworks exhibition, a sort of early Madame Tussauds. Uh, waxworks exhibition in New York City in 1789 where the government was sitting that included this old hermit next to uh, a Native American, next to George Washington, next to the British royal family. Wow. It was quite a popular hermit, I think you could say. Um, <laughs> as <laughs> uh, hermits go. As hermits go. Uh, quite, a, quite a popular hermit. Some were enchanted by these tales of hermits. For others— there was something in the idea of the solitary life which seemed threatening to the social order. 
They saw it as unnatural, maybe even sinister. You do see this uh, frequent denigration within the political theory of the day of this kind of notion of solitude. So a lot of social contract thinkers feel that, that human beings are naturally sociable, and so they want to come together uh, in conjugal relationships, in social relationships, in church relationships, and, and so forth. And that men are by nature social beings. Thomas Paine is somebody who always valorizes um, union. And so consequently, solitude is a kind of negative category for him. He gives you an example at the beginning of Common Sense, his great political pamphlet of early 1776, that the strength of a single individual could probably not erect a building in the wilderness, whereas four or five people together could. Mm. And then even after the Constitution, one of the great framers, James Wilson of Pennsylvania, and one of the first law professors of the United States, gives a series of lectures, sort of really one of the first public law lectures at the University of Pennsylvania in 1790 and 1791. And he gives a lecture on the social contract um, in which he, he proposes the thought experiment. You know, what if suddenly you were reduced to solitude? So, you know, again, the question of what is, what is natural for human beings, individuality and individualism or social collectivity is certainly uh, on his mind. These disagreements about the value of solitude start to play into debates about the nature of the social contract, the role of government, and where rights come from. There's no getting around the idea that in the 18th century, uh, people who think in terms of contract theory and, and the origin of, of governments and origin of states, they tend to think solitary individuals carry a certain bundle of rights out of the state of nature. And they have various views of what the state of nature might look like, ranging from, you know, uh, those who see, like Locke, perfect liberty and perfect equality, um, to those who see, like Hobbes, uh, a life that is, um, well, what's the famous phrase? Solitary, poor, nasty, nasty brutish, brutish, and short. short. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> right? But solitary is the first word there. Mm, um, interesting. And, you know, I, the idea really, you know, the main political philosophy of, say, the Declaration or of the American Revolution in general tends to be that God gave natural rights to human beings. Human beings use some of those rights to create civil governments, but still there's always the retained right of, of revolution or the right to alter or abolish when a government is found to be imperfect in its protection of those uh, inalienable rights. So in theory, a person in solitude helps create a democratic society when they consent to the social contract, but in practice, the act of choosing to be alone was still suspicious. James Madison embodies this tension between both valuing solitude as necessary for independent decision-making and recognizing that solitude can be anti-democratic. So, you know, you do see a lot of denigration of closet politicians or sort of utopian thinking that that is not done uh, in public or, or, or done with collective decision making. I do see Madison as somebody who is torn between this desire to kind of be a closet politician and also to have decisions that are made collectively. I think there were many decisions made collectively that he didn't like. And, you know, one of, one of my favorite lines of his comes from a memo he 
wrote just before he appeared in, in Philadelphia. It's a famous memo on the vices of the political system of the United States. He right. wrote in that, in that memo that you can't rely on character or religion um, within popular assemblies, political assemblies, to protect minority rights because the conduct of every popular assembly acting on oath, which he said was the strongest of religious ties, shows that individuals join without remorse in acts against which their <laughs> consciences would revolt if proposed to them separately in their closet. So people act in, in, a, in a way that, that they wouldn't act if you presented certain cases to them. So the question of who we are when we're alone is not a new question. Both before and after the revolution, debates continued about whether solitude helps us reflect and make kinder decisions, or whether we become more selfish when we're by ourselves. Eric Slaughter is associate professor of English and deputy dean of humanities at the University of Chicago. He is the author of The State as a Work of Art, The Cultural Origins of the Constitution. <laughs> 